BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. VR training platforms like the one developed by Fundamental VR and Orbis International are helping surgeons train over and over before operating on real patients. As you practice each skill, the muscle memory starts to develop. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. You and Betty and the Nancys and Bills and Joes and Janes will find in the study of science a richer, more rewarding life. Hey, welcome to Inquiring Minds. I'm Indre Viscontis. This is a podcast that explores the space where science and society collide. We want to find out what's true, what's left to discover, and why it matters. If, like me, you're spending more time at home, sheltering in place, or just staying safe, then maybe you're also spending more time gazing out your windows, observing wildlife outdoors, or maybe your pets indoors. Well, I thought it might be fun to talk to someone about at least my most favorite insect, if not the world's most favorite insect. And that would be the beautiful butterfly. But butterflies aren't just beautiful. They're also super interesting in terms of what they're able to do. I mean, just think of monarch butterflies that can migrate over hundreds of miles. And the many scientists that have spent time figuring out just how they know where to go. Wendy Williams is a science writer and best-selling author of The Horse. And now her latest book is called The Language of Butterflies. How thieves, hoarders, scientists, and other obsessives unlocked the secrets of the world's favorite insect. Wendy Williams, welcome to Inquiring Minds. Glad to be here. So I have a kindergartner, and I like to think that I'm just slightly ahead of him on things like what is an insect. Uh, But I was wrong. Uh, We had um, an author on our show, School Me, uh, on that. And so now we get to the difference between butterflies and moths. And so before I, you know, put my foot in my mouth, um, I'd love for you to tell me and our listeners, what is the difference between a butterfly and a moth? You know, that's a great question. And um, I had a fun time, uh, if, since you've read the book, I had a fun time writing about that because there are so many rules about butterflies and moths. But when you look more closely at those rules, you realize they don't hold fast. Lepidoptera, which is the scientific word for the group that comprises butterflies and moths, have butterflies and they have moths. Most people think of moths as night-flying insects and butterflies as being day-flying insects, and in general, they would be right. But there are actually day-flying moths. Most people think of moths as being yucky, that's the scientific term, technical, and butterflies as being attractive, but Sometimes moths can be very, very attractive. It just tells us how actually wonderful and creative and innovative nature can be. My favorite moth is the story that I tell in the book of um, my standing one day and looking at something hovering at my butterfly bush. 
and getting at the flowers. And at first I thought, that must be a really tiny uh, hummingbird. I've never seen one that tiny. It must be, I, I had seen a tiny hummingbird that called the bee hummingbird in Cuba. And I thought, perhaps somehow it got up here. I don't know how it would get this far north. I live on Cape Cod in Massachusetts, by the way. So I watched it closely and I kept watching it and watching it. And the more I watched it, the more I realized, no, it's really not a hummingbird. It acts like a hummingbird, but there are some anomalies that make clear to me that it's not a hummingbird. Well, it turned out it was a hummingbird moth. It behaved very much like a hummingbird, including the shape, but it was actually a moth and it was out nectaring. That's what it's the word for feeding is out nectaring in the middle of the day. So you can't make hard or fast rules. I went and talked to a very wonderful person at Harvard who showed me a tray of butterflies and a tray of moths. And she said, tell me which are the butterflies and which are the moths. So I used all the rules. You know, butterflies are thin and elegant and have gorgeous coloring and moths are short and frumpy and furry and don't have nice antennas. And each time I guessed wrong, I I call the moth a butterfly and a butterfly a moth because there is no hard and fast rule. The one thing that seems to be true is that butterflies don't fly in the dark. They fly at dusk sometimes, not often, but there are some species that fly at dusk, but they don't fly at dark. But I'm sure that someone who knows more about the subject than I do will get in touch with me right away and say, here's a butterfly that flies at midnight. Yeah, there's, I love behavioral ecology in particular, because I feel like anytime you say, well, you know, no animal other than X can do Y. I know. Gives those, you sentences, those sentences drive me crazy. And I try to wipe them out of my writing. I'm not sure I'm always <laughs> successful, but I do the best I can. But there is this mythology associated with, as you mentioned, moths are bad, butterflies are good, or moths are our ugly butterflies are pretty. Can you tell us a little bit about where that comes from and you know what, what that sort of means for us culturally now? Where does it come from? Well, it's pretty deeply rooted in our culture that, and I don't, it, you know, in our culture, it wasn't that moths are bad and butterflies are good so much as the caterpillars, the larva form, if you want to use the technical word, of moths can be very, very destructive. Um, They can destroy fields of food that people in the Middle Ages depended on for being alive, having something to eat over the winter. Nobody, interestingly, really associated these caterpillars or larvae with the flying insect. That, That was something when I researched that and started thinking about it, I couldn't believe that in our day, we are quite clear that larvae and caterpillars either go into a cocoon or into a chrysalis and emerge as a specific species of butterfly or moth. 300 or 400 years ago, they didn't know this. They had no way of connecting these larvae crawling things that actually destroyed food and other things that went into these chrysalises and cocoons and emerged with specific uh, specific flying insects. We, we didn't know that. We had no idea. So a certain attitude, shall I say, got started where 
the caterpillars or the larvae were connected with other things that people didn't like in those days. For example, worms, um, creepy crawly things that would cause havoc, either maggots, for example. They were all lumped in one thing. And then when flying butterflies, which were clearly so beautiful, emerged from this process, that was considered a totally different separate animal, sometimes with a separate name. So I think it roots back to the time when people were dependent on food that they were growing themselves and knew that some of these early, some, some of these larvae forms were actually destroying their crops. That's one thing that I, I suspect may have had to do with it. Also, you don't usually find butterflies that are in your wool, eating your wool. Um, so moths have tend to have, and again, there's going to be exceptions, moths tend to be more destructive of things that are important to human than butterflies are. So you mentioned this time in the cocoon or the chrysalis, and, you know, I've read The Very Hungry Caterpillar many, many times. <laughs> and, uh, you know, just like my kids, I'm always amazed at how it just pops out and it's a beautiful butterfly. And I wondered if you could tell us a little bit about what we know about what actually happens uh, in during that transformation, how much do we know about how that actually works and kind of what are the key steps? An awful lot right now, a whole lot more than we knew even 10 years ago, which I found fascinating. Yeah. So can you walk us through a little bit about how that all works? Yeah. When, when, you know, when I started working on this book, I had no idea that there was going to be this massive amount of information that I would be able to write about that really nobody else has written about in a popular book yet because it's so new. In the old days, in three or four hundred years ago, in the days when people grew the food that they ate, what was visible to people in the cocoon and the moth was really kind of just a gooey gel, you know. So that this the strange thing that seemed so incomprehensible to people was that these creepy crawly things created these cocoons or chrysalises, and then they turned to they seemed to turn to jelly, you know, just a liquid thing that would, you know, sometimes drip awful noxious, what they said were noxious fluids. And then all of a sudden at the end of this process, this beautiful thing would emerge. And that's where a lot of the myths and a lot of the adoration of butterflies came from, this seemingly magical process. Now with modern technology, we know that when that larvae form goes into that home, shall I call it a home, and changes form, that there are a lot of parts of that future insect that are already there. It's not true that the whole larvae form completely dissolves and out emerges a beautiful butterfly. The essence of these butterflies and moths are actually in there. So when you see this red fluid dripping from this cocoon or chrysalis, that's the excess fluid. And already in there are these preliminary cells that are ready to form, or in some cases have already formed small parts of the future butterfly. So it's not a question of what was there vanishing completely and then something else magically appears. There's no magic to it. The basic form is already there in that chrysalis or 
uh, cocoon, and what happens is it reorganizes itself. Some parts of it do dissolve and are never seen again, but other parts remain exactly what they were when, when the insect went into that cocoon or chrysalis. One of the other things that's kind of amazing about butterflies is especially the monarch butterfly. I don't know how many other butterflies have such a large migratory space or such a long migration is the fact that they seem to have knowledge built into their nervous system when they emerge out of their chrysalis. And so is that part of does is there some kind of nervous system that gets you know that that is you know con- continues across that transition going from larva to butterfly? I don't think science really understands the answer to that question yet. There is I wouldn't call it knowledge. There seems to be information that affects the development of let's talk about butterflies so I can just say chrysalises. There seems to be information that affects the development of the caterpillar before it goes into the chrysalis, which then helps to shape development while it's in the chrysalis so that when it emerges from the chrysalis, it has that information already present. But environmental conditions in the caterpillar, in the chrysalis, and in the emerging butterfly are what really affect what will happen when that insect emerges. This is complicated a little bit, but for example, the warmer it is, the shorter the time the insect will be in the chrysalis and develop into the, into the butterfly. So warmth, we know for sure, affects that developmental period. But we also are starting to think about how these things are affected by the angle of the sun. The angle of the sun against the horizon seems to be changing the biology of the caterpillar and the biology of the emergent butterfly. So that some butterflies that are emerging at the time when we are getting closer to the fall and when the days are just a little bit shorter, and the monarch butterfly, for example, become much longer lived. They don't have a short, let's say approximately three weeks to one month period of enjoying the sunshine in the summer and nectaring and mating. Instead, their bodies are different. Their neurology is different. Their behavior is different. And they are prepared to fly from wherever they are all the way south to wherever is a good place for them to overwinter. Mostly it's in the mountains of Mexico, but not always. And then that same insect may be prepared to emerge from this semi-resting state and fly all the way back up north. So there are a few situations that have been recorded in which a butterfly, a monarch butterfly in Canada will fly all the way south to the mountains of Mexico, which is a journey of thousands of miles, then find its way up into the mountains of Mexico. Nobody knows how the insects do that. Stay there for two to three months and then leave and fly all the way back to Canada. So some of these insects may actually live for as long as nine months. Whereas during the summer, the insects that are enjoying summer the summer lifestyle only have at most about a month to flourish. 
That's that's amazing. It's like, you know, they're following all the Canadians who go down and snowboard down in Mexico. And I definitely want to talk about sort of the monarch in particular. But before we get there, I was always I always wondered how scientists knew what an individual butterfly does over the course of this migration. And in your book, you tell this like amazing story about um, a girl named Amelie and her tagging. <laughs> I don't know if I'm pronouncing her name right, if it's Amelie or if it's Amelia. Amelia, Amelia. Uh, Amelia, Amelia. So can you tell us uh, about Amelia and her tags? This is, I love this program. This is Dr. David James from Washington State started this incredible program that's been so successful. He has a number of volunteers up in his area who tag the butterflies beginning during the beginning, earliest days of the migration period, which could be in his case where he lives late August, all the way through September. And then the when these insects fly south, Various people see them, and because of the ubiquity of cell phones, they may take a photo of this insect. And when they take the photo, they'll see this little tag, and Dr. James's tag says, if you see this insect, please let me know about it, and he gives an email address. And most people who see it with a photo will email him the photo. But, but like, let's just pause there for a minute. It must be tiny, this little tag. It's very, yes, it's very tiny. It fits on the tip of your finger. My husband is 6'2". It fits, I mean, it, you, could, it, you can barely see it on his finger. It, it's so much bigger than mine, but it's a tiny, tiny, lightweight thing. And to be honest, most people wouldn't see it. I, I wouldn't see it. But other people, when they, a lot of people, a lot of times take pictures of these monarchs and other insects also because they're so beautiful. And then they look more closely and they see that tag. In in the case of Amelia's butterfly, she lived in Western Oregon. When she released her butterfly, it was first noted in a um, flower garden on top of a San Francisco high rise. And the woman who had the flower garden saw the butterfly nectaring on her plants, and she was delighted, and she took a picture of it. And she said, oh, look, here's this tag. What does it say? And she didn't know anything about monarchs. You know, she wasn't doing anything intentionally. But she said, oh, it says, tell the scientist in Washington State about it. So she sent an email to him with the photograph. And it was, you know, just really a wonderful thing. The surprise is that at least three other people saw that same insect, that same butterfly, Amelia's butterfly, photographed it and sent it to Dr. James. So he was able to get a lot of important information about what butterflies do when they reach the end of their migration simply by following the insect that had been tagged by five-year-old Amelia. I mean, I, I would have, This it seems in some ways very low tech, you know, it's like I, I would have. That's what's wonderful about it. That, don't you think that's just <laughs> yeah, what's wonderful? Yeah. yeah. Um, but I, and I guess like the idea of a, of a real GPS tracker is just, just too heavy, right? I mean, you probably wouldn't be able to. People have been trying for years to develop one that is lightweight enough and inexpensive enough. The thing about Dr. James's tags is they cost a couple pennies each. So he loses a, a lot of them, but it doesn't matter that he, does, he loses them. 
you don't want to spend a lot of money on a GPS tracker, especially if it's that lightweight, it'll be very expensive and then lose track of it. You'll just, you know, in a, in a world where we had all the money we wanted for science, you could do that, but we don't. So what I love about this program is it's all volunteer. Dr. James himself is not paid to do this. It's just a project that he cares about. He's cared about insects since he was a child. And he does a lot to recruit people and people love being recruited. So it, it's definitely very low tech, but it's also at the same time given us a really good picture. We used to think that monarchs would go to the California coast, pick a place to overwinter and stay there. Now we know that's not true at all. They might go from one tree to another tree in the same area, or they might go from one area to another area. Um, they're kind of like snowbirds, you know, and they go where the beach is best. If the beach isn't good where they went last year, they'll find somewhere better. I mean, it is it is amazing. And, you know, listeners, if you're looking for something to do and, and help science, this seems like if you've got butterflies in your garden this summer, it seems like a wonderful idea to, to write to Dr. James and ask for some tags. Absolutely. His address is easily found, his email address is easily found on the internet, David James. Um, I think he calls himself I don't remember what he calls this program, but you'll find him. Just put in David James Monarch and all this amazing information will come up. And he's just such a wonderful person. That's why so many people want to help him. BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022 by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Ophthalmologist Dr. Strauss has seen firsthand how the metaverse is helping surgeons practice the procedures to treat cataracts. Cataracts are the primary cause of avoidable blindness. He works with a virtual reality training platform developed by Fundamental VR and Orbis International to help surgeons develop the muscle memory they need. The result? More confident, capable surgeons. And even more importantly, patients who can see. Explore more stories like Dr. Strauss's at meta.com slash metaverseimpact. If you travel, you know how to pull off a perfect getaway. You know after you enroll with your Delta SkyMiles Platinum American Express card, you get up to $10 back monthly on U.S. rideshare purchases with select providers, like a car to the airport. You know which remote retreats have the best herbal baths and where the Wi-Fi password is rarely used because you're the escape artist. It's why you're a Delta SkyMiles Platinum American Express card member. If you travel, you know. Terms apply. Purchases must be on card. Visit go.amic slash you know. So one of the things that scientists have, uh, at least here in California, noted about the monarchs is their decline in numbers, uh, their steep decline over the last few years. So can you tell us a little bit about what is happening that we know of or, or, and, and where the mystery remains? I don't think people really know why there's been such a steep decline in west of the mountains. First, we should tell listeners that monarchs in North America are loosely divided between a population that flies east of the Rockies and a population that flies west of the Rockies. And the reason I say loosely is because some monarchs are anomalies and they can 
fly over the Rockies. They actually have been found to turn up in David James's program when they started somewhere east of the Rockies. It's not very often, but it does happen. The population west of the Rockies has declined precipitously, seriously precipitously in the last five years. It started earlier than that, but the last five years have made people become really concerned. Why? Everybody wants to know why. There could be so many reasons. There, Remember that there have been um, widespread fires during monarch season for years because of the drought. Also, a lot of the land that monarchs used to rely on in order to be able to refuel as they're flying south has been destroyed. It's been turned into agricultural land or maybe just parking lots for shopping malls. It's disappeared, and that certainly is having an effect. Um, changing weather has a lot of effect on the neurology of these insects. If it's too cold for too long, if it's too warm for too long, that will affect things. Um, certainly, the insects overwinter in on the West Coast all the way from Northern California to Southern California. If the weather is extremely warm in Southern California and there are a lot of nectaring plants, they're finding that the insects get down there, but they don't overwinter. They just breed and continue to proliferate, which is good in the short run, but quite possibly not good in the long run because they won't be migrating back north, probably. No one really knows for sure. So those are many reasons. Dr. James has done a really interesting piece of research that I haven't written about yet. It's very new. He's found that some pesticides in plants affect the neurology and the developmental process of monarchs to a very great degree. If a monarch consumes nectar from a plant that was raised using certain pesticides, even if pesticides haven't been used since that plant has been planted, that shortens the life of the insect by several weeks. I have to go back. I don't remember specifically the number, but the, the lifetime of that adult insect is vastly shortened, which means that although the insect is alive, you're going to be getting a lot fewer offspring from that insect because it won't be reproducing for as long a period of time. I think we might find out that pesticides are having a major role in what's going on, but all of this is theorizing and supposition right now. We don't know for sure. So there's another very cliched saying, the social butterfly, and I want to stick with monarchs for a little bit because they're so interesting um, and ask you, uh, you know, reading your book, I kind of developed this uh, stereotype. So, you know, the monarch's going to have to forgive my prejudice, but, you know, there's the jerk male and the single working <laughs> mother female. So, you know, tell me about these two, uh, the different behaviors of the, of the different gendered monarchs. Well, let's start with the fact that monarchs don't really like each other. You might see monarchs together during the summertime because there's a field of flowers that they really like, or, or maybe there's a spread of milkweed. And so there's a number of monarchs that are using that milkweed, but they don't really like to be together. They'd rather be by themselves, which I understand. That makes sense to me. It's nice weather. Don't bother me. Then when the migration time starts about late August, their behavior changes a lot. 
and they do become social. Instead of trying to get away from other monarchs, they actually flock together on and hang out on trees when they're getting ready to head south. So instead of seeing monarchs spread all over a huge amount of acreage, you might actually see all the monarchs from an area on the same tree getting ready to fly south. So that's one thing where we talk about how the biology of the monarch changes when they're ready to migrate. But I think the question that you also asked is, dare we say it, a sexual question? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I, like, I like the idea that you're calling them uh, what did you call the males? Jerks? The, I mean, I was going to use the word asshole, but then I think that would probably no, get edited let's, out. Let's not, let's not do that. Okay. Let's yeah. just, jerks is really good. Um, the, male monarchs are really, 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 really aggressive in mating with females. And in general, the females just don't want to be bothered. They'd rather be left alone. So I found when talking with people who'd spent their lives researching monarchs, this, shall we call it an anthropomorphism? There are a lot of people who study monarchs who really don't like the males. <laughs> the ma we, should, we should preface the male monarchs. We're not talking about the males male in right, general. The male monarch. The male monarch. <laughs> it doesn't, the scientists can be male or female, but it seems to it's cross, you know, it doesn't matter what the gender is. The scientists feel resentful toward the male monarch and how they keep bothering this poor female. And that's true. They're very, very aggressive and they will harass the female until they can manage to, in some cases, actually throw the female on the ground and manage to grab hold of the female and mate with the female. When that starts, they actually, the males will pick up the female and carry her away and sit in a tree branch somewhere and stay with her for hours while the mating process continues. Um, and this, the poor females can be very exhausted by this because once that male monarch is finished, other male monarchs come over and harass her in exactly the same way. I don't think I'd like to be a female monarch. On the other hand, it's nature's way of ensuring that there's a really good mix of genetic material. So Sometimes the male monarchs will be able to remove the genetic material from the earlier male monarchs. Sometimes nature has a way of hiding that genetic material so they don't get to get rid of all of it. It's a very complex process. And if you start to anthropomorphize it, which many people do, you can get into some very disturbing conclusions. And butterflies have told us so much about evolution, about natural selection, even, uh, as you mentioned, about sort of uh, sexual behavior and how it leads to genetic variability. Um, and, you know, Darwin uh, has, you know, credited butterflies and, and, and uh, as kind of having allowed him to make his point. Well, I I, th I think that's maybe putting the car before the horse a little bit or the horse after the car. I don't know how you would say that. He made his, you know, interestingly to me, the Victorian world was crazy about butterflies on each side of the Atlantic. People loved them and collected them. And for some reason, Charles Darwin wasn't really very interested in butterflies. He lived in the same era, but his thing was beetles. He loved beetles as a child. He would... The boys would, you know, he would go out with his school friends and they would all be doing other things. And Darwin would go lifting rocks and picking up beetles for his beetle collection. So he didn't really know a lot about butterflies. 
when he took his famous trip all around the world, the books that he wrote afterwards have very little about butterflies in them. I looked and looked. I said, there must be some interesting stories. And there wasn't really. There were a few interesting stories, but not many. It wasn't until after he wrote his book about evolution that he became interested in butterflies because, of course, his ideas were challenged. And there was one cleric in Britain who said, you might say that evolution happens this way, but butterflies prove that you're wrong. There's no way that butterflies were created by anything but God. They're so beautiful, they must come from God. Well, unbeknownst to this cleric, there were a couple of fellows who were also interested in these ideas about evolution who had gone to South America. And they had collected an awful lot of information about butterflies because butterflies were very prolific in South America, quite different from European and British butterflies, both in size and in numbers. So they knew a lot about butterflies. And when these remarks were made about butterflies proving that Darwin's ideas about evolution had to be incorrect, one of them wrote to him and said, I have some information I think you ought to have. And he had spent years documenting the behavior of various species of butterflies and had shown that butterflies would change colors. Various species of butterflies would change colors in order to camouflage themselves, if you will, from predators. If you had a certain butterfly, like a monarch, but not a monarch there, but something like a monarch that had a bright orange color that warned that the, this insect was poisonous. Other butterflies would be flying near that particular kind of butterfly, and eventually their colors too would mimic that color of that poisonous butterfly. They weren't poisonous, but they were taking advantage of the um, butterfly that was poisonous by pretending to be that butterflies. It's kind of a scam artist thing, you know, where, well, I know you don't like um, this particular butterfly. So the more I look like that particular butterfly, the less, more you'll leave me alone. And it worked. So those, obviously he had ideas that were much more fine-tuned than that. But when he sent that information to Charles Darwin and said, here's proof in the modern world, in today's world, that what you're saying has is, has grounding, that it, there is evidence in our world today that you're correct. So I also um, want to take a moment to remind our listeners that Wendy Williams's book, The Language of Butterflies, How Thieves, Hoarders, Scientists, and Other Obsessives Unlocked the Secrets of the World's Favorite Insect is now available at booksellers everywhere. But I, I want to overturn another uh, myth, or I should say, get the story straight, uh, on something that has swung in, in one direction and then another and then back again, which is the story of the peppered moth in Manchester. So I'd love for you to tell us sort of the original finding and then how it was considered incorrect. And now finally, uh, we, we, we feel that actually it's it's true. It is true. What had happened is... During the earliest industrial days in Britain, before they had any idea about the devastation caused by pollution, um, particular coal in particular, 
there was a moth that had a light color because the tree branches were light colored. So its wings were light colored. Then it was discovered that that same species of moth during the days when pollution levels were high would rest on the tree. And um, the researcher found that the wings of that moth were dark colored because it camouflaged better. Uh, on a dark tree because the tree itself was darker because of camouflage. So when the world became darker because of pollution from coal and other industries, then the moth itself changed the color of its wings quite quickly, in fact, to camouflage more easily on a dark colored tree trunk as opposed to a light colored tree trunk. Then when the pollution was brought under control, the moths were able to return to a light color in their wings so that they were again camouflaged on the trees that were now once again light colored. There was some disagreement over the methodology of that science. I think the person who started that research project was not an accredited scientist. I think he was a citizen scientist. So there was some disagreement over its legitimacy. What happened was that disagreement was raised to such a level for various reasons, which we can all imagine right now. So the truth was being obscured. Several scientists went back who were accredited scientists and did a more organized, more scientifically controlled experiment and found that, in fact, that is true. The color of this the wing color of this moth will change depending on the background that the moth has to rest on. The thing I love about this moth is that you can see natural selection in action, right? The fact that the, you know, the light colored moths get picked off by birds. <laughs> right. That's, that's right. The light colored moths on a dark tree trunk are vulnerable. The light colored moths on a light tree trunk are not vulnerable. Then when you have the opposite situation that the tree trunks return to their original light color, the moths again go back because the dark colored moths are now vulnerable. So they're the ones that are taken by the predators, birds, and whatever other thing eats insects, and the light colored moths remain. It's a pretty simple, easy to understand example of evolution which I think is why people liked talking about it initially. Um, and so I think that's why the idea was attacked. I mean, I just, it, it, to me, it was like something that I always used as an example. And then someone pointed me to this controversy and said, you can't use it. It's not true. <laughs> and then reading it your is, book, I was is, like, wait, wait, wait a minute. It is no, true and I it, can it's use it. It's very true. It's very true. <laughs> it was just a temporary thing where, you know, scientists are human beings. And so they can get into quibbles. And our job as science journalists, I think, is to take a step back and not get too deeply involved in those quibbles, except to say that eventually a very highly credentialed scientist did step in and he did a long running program and showed that, in fact, it is true, which is common sense. My favorite example, which I think I do mention in the book, is not at all about insects. It's about birds and um, a scientist that studied a bird population that that habitated an area that was near a uh, highway. They used a bridge that went over the highway as a place to um, call their home territory. 
initially they had a certain shape of wing. And then when that highway was used more and more by high-speed cars, the scientists documented the change in the wind shape and the wing shape. And it was just a very tiny change. I mean, just, a, you know, maybe an, a quarter of an inch or something, but the shape also changed. It was shorter and the shape changed so that this particular species of bird was able to avoid the cars that were now speeding more quickly. And so they live longer. Amazing. Wendy Williams, thank you so much for being on Inquiring Minds. Well, thank you for being interested in the book. I have to say it was an awful lot of fun to research. I I don't think I really intended to write an entire book about butterflies, but once I got started, I actually couldn't stop. Certainly for me, whenever I'm having a tough day and the world feels a little bit darker, one of my favorite things to do is go somewhere and observe these flying flowers. So that's it for another episode. Thanks for listening. And if you want to hear more, don't forget to subscribe. If you'd like to get an ad-free version of the show, consider supporting us at patreon.com slash inquiringminds. I want to especially thank David Noel, Herring Chang, Sean Johnson, Jordan Millar, Kyle Rehala, Michael Galgool, Eric Clark, Yushi Lin, Clark Lindgren, Joel, Stefan Meyer Awald, and Charles Blyle. Inquiring Minds is produced by Adam Isaac, and I'm your host, Indre Viscontis. You can find me on Twitter at Indre Vis. See you next week. Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid-scale solar energy in Ohio and producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America.